Welcome to Thoughts from Home, your conservation podcast from the National Conservation Training Center. We're located along the Potomac River in historic Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and are home to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome, everybody. This will be part two of our podcast on scientific river diving. We're joined by Ryan Haggerty and Matthew Patterson from the National Conservation Training Center in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And right now, we're just going to talk a little bit about some of the interesting species that these gentlemen have worked with over the years. And we're going to talk a little bit about the whole procedure, about what are they doing down there? Are you actually catching animals to bring them into the laboratory or are you mostly just videotaping for various inventory and monitoring purposes? Matthew, can you talk a little bit about some of the species that you've worked with over the years as a scientific river diver? Yeah, we talked quite a bit about fish species in part one there. I wanted to go back to the freshwater mussels because, well, they're the coolest animals in the world. So we should spend more time talking about them than we do about fish. The cool thing about mussels and some of the species that we've worked with and Ryan has taken pictures of, as I mentioned a little bit in part one, was they're obligate parasites of freshwater fish. So they have a larval stage that has to attach to a fish in almost all cases. There are a couple exceptions to complete metamorphosis. So just like a butterfly would complete metamorphosis from a caterpillar to a butterfly, mussels have to do that from the larval stage, which is called a glochidium, to a juvenile. And then the only way to do that is to attach to a fish. So you think about mussels, they're, they don't move really a whole lot. They're burrowers in the substrate. So how do they attach their larvae to a fish? I mean, the, the adult female is, is brooding those larvae inside the gills. So how does it get it attached to a host? Well, they've come up with all these crazy ways of doing it. They'll produce little things called conglutinates that look like what that fish host would eat. They might look like a black fly larvae, or they might look like another aquatic insect. And when the fish comes to eat it, they get infested with these larval mussels instead. Well, one in particular, and this is one that occurs in the Potomac just down the hill from NCTC, is Lampsilis cardium. It has a mantle flap. So the mantle is the part of the tissue that lays down the shell in a, in a mussel. Everyone's seen shells on the beach. The shell is laid down by the mantle. Well, in this case, the mantle has been modified to look like a fish and it can wiggle it in the water. This thing has fins like a fish. It has eyes like a fish. It has a lateral line like a fish. And it looks just like a minnow. And so the host is a smallmouth bass. The smallmouth bass comes, sees this thing wiggling on the bottom, goes to take a bite and gets infested with juvenile mussels. Amazing that this thing has evolved over all this time. So that's one of the coolest species that I've worked with locally are these mussels that have all these crazy adaptations for infecting the host fish. Mussels have a lot of uh, similarities with fishermen. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. In fact, there are some species that the same species at the same river site. So say you go to the river and it's a road crossing. You get in and it's just one site, you know, maybe 100 meters up and downstream. This one species can have five or six different lures that look totally different. And the idea there is just like the fishermen, they change 
their lures because a fish gets used to seeing a certain one. And so if they have different strategies, the chances of catching that fish are better. We've tried to um, film some of these fish and muscle interactions in aquariums before, and that comes with it its own set of issues because in aquarium and with that nice visibility, the fish is looking at that muscle and saying to itself, that's not food. Whereas in a river, water's moving, it's slightly a little, a little more cloudier, that fish comes past it just like with a fisherman's fishing lure and is more likely to attack it if there's a slight shade to the water, a slight turbidity to the water. When you're working on these species, do you typically try to bring them into captivity or do you mostly just keep them right where they are located? Yeah, from a photography perspective, Jim, I tend to photograph species mostly in the rivers in their own habitat. Sometimes, though, you will come across a fish species or a mussel species that the water clarity is so bad, so poor, that you do have to figure out a different solution. One time we worked with a fish hatchery in South Dakota to photograph American paddlefish. They captured them from the Missouri River and we put them into a pond filled with well water and a natural bottom that they were nice enough to make us. And so we we got really amazing photographs of this fish, very large fish, where we wouldn't have been able to do that in the Missouri River because it's such a large river and these fish don't often pose for photographs. So if you're lucky enough to even get them, you would probably only get one fleeting photograph instead of many like we did in this experiment to photograph them at the hatchery, but it worked out well. But I think it's it's really important, we've been kind of pushing this recently, is getting imagery of aquatic species in their natural habitat and for a couple of reasons. One, if you're taking photos of fish or mussels in their natural habitat, one, the image provides some information about what their habitat is. So that's helpful. And two, from an outreach standpoint, it pulls people into the river as opposed to either an aquarium or even better yet, the traditional shot that you always see on social media is someone has a fish, they have it in their hands and they're holding it out. It gives the impression if it's a fish or a mussel, even if subliminally, that these things are fine out of water. And this fish that you're holding out of water is is struggling to breathe. It's just like if you were to take a person and hold their head underwater. They can't breathe. They're unable to breathe. So it gives this impression that a muscle out of water is just like a muscle in the water. It's it, it's fine. It, it, it'll do just fine. So we've been trying to push that with people and the social media group. Like, let's show images of these things in their natural habitat where they're they're happy, they're, they're thriving. You can see their habitat. And it really pulls people in more than just the, the standard grip and grin shot of a fish that you've caught. That um, brings me to the term split shots. On that same, the way we achieve that sometimes, we can have a fish and wildlife service biologist or any biologist releasing fish, but we can have a dome port that allows us to photograph the top side of the diver and below the water at the same time. So you can still see the fish being released under the water. And that definitely shows it's still in its habitat. And um, and yeah, I, I agree with Matthew. It's in, incredibly important that we get as many images 
of the fish's habitat, the fish in their habitat that we can, because I think the public learns a lot. Even scientists learn quite a lot. I've been asking other scientists and other uh, fisheries biologists if they snorkel lately and and uh, if they don't, that they should start because you learn a lot just by getting down and observing the fish in their own habitat. Yeah, Ryan, didn't you just recently share a sculpin video and some scientific data was collected from that? There was this behavior that this sculpin was doing that they didn't realize that was happening. Isn't that correct? Yes, uh, there was a, a sculpin species that's actually species is not described by science yet. And um, I've videotaped it cleaning uh, a nest out. It was pulling gravel with its mouth and then was bringing it out and spitting it out. So it was a really cute little video, but the scientist who's writing the paper added that to his to the data because uh, he had not seen that before and didn't know they did it. And that's something that you would never see if you don't get your face in the water. If you're electrofishing, for example, or seining for fish, you pull the fish up in the net, you have no idea what that fish was doing and before it got in the net. But if you have your face in the water, you see all kinds of behaviors that are really interesting from a biological standpoint. It's a little bit about the equipment that you use to photograph and videotape these animals. There are a lot of different solutions for underwater video and photography out there in the world. A lot of people have seen all these action cameras. Some uh, are GoPros. There's different brands out there, but everybody tends to think of them as GoPros. And those are fantastic. They're very wide angle, waterproof cameras, and you can take them underwater and get high quality video. Getting close-up photographs with a GoPro is a little harder, and they don't have flashes with them. So I have a full-sized SLR camera or DSLR camera inside of an underwater aluminum housing. It has all the controls on the outside, and I double-check and triple-check those seals to make sure that I'm not going to get a leak. And the good thing is I have sensors now that can tell me that if there's water leakage or anything else, that's always nerve-wracking when you have a underwater housing that's just said it has a leak in it and you're worried you're going to lose a few thousand dollars of camera. In dark rivers and streams, I take my light with me and I take flashes and video lights with me too. So you definitely have to alter the amount of light in most areas you go to other than the, the clearest water and shallow water. You obviously get a little more light there too because the light penetration, it's not as hard to find light down there on the bottom of a shallow, clear river. I'm a real reptile amphibian fanatic. Do you see a lot of salamanders and turtles and tadpoles? Do you see other kinds of animals besides fish and mussels? What else do you see down there? Yeah, we do see lots of other animals. In fact, one of the the dive trips that we went on in Texas was looking for endangered salamanders, the Martin Springs salamander. We see lots of lots of turtles. In fact, you can see hellbenders as well. They're more elusive and they tend to live under really large slab rocks, which even if you're diving are hard to, to see under. And traditionally for hellbenders, the survey technique was to flip the rock over and find it. Well, it turns out 
now we know that this really destroys their habitat. You know, this rock may have been in place here for thousands and thousands of years, and it's built its its home under there in this stable environment. <laughs> as soon as you turn it over, all that substrate and things just is gone. So a new technique I think that a lot of people are going to use for for hellbenders is is eDNA because you can sample for them and find them without having to turn that rock over. But yeah, we see all kinds of stuff. Another thing you see a lot of, this is not a, a herp, but it's aquatic insects. You see a lot of the larval stages of aquatic insects just everywhere doing their thing. Much change in the rivers over time that you've been working in, like the Potomac and the Shenandoah? I can't say that we've seen a lot of measurable change locally in the Potomac. I do think we've been seeing more flathead catfish. They've been moving in quite a bit. We've also heard that from the biologists, the Maryland DNR biologists who do the surveys of those fish. I have worried about some of the streams that I've seen over the years. There was a a river in West Virginia that has a lot of endangered fish that I remember filming, oh gosh, maybe 15 years ago. And I put my head underwater and it was just an amazing fish tank of species and colors. And the last two times I've been to that river in those same spots, there's been a lot less fish. And so it's easy to jump to conclusions on that. But um, what worries me is that maybe some of these spaces have been filled in by silt or runoff and uh, have degraded that habitat, so maybe those fish are no longer there. But yeah, that's something uh, the biologists look at in their surveys too. Um, going going back to the hellbenders, hellbenders are very large. Uh, I think the largest aquatic salamander in North America, if I'm correct. Really interesting. They remind me of uh, the dog, the Sharpe, that has all this wrinkly skin. And um, I was snorkeling underwater, I was looking for fish, and all of a sudden I thought, well, who left this dirty sock under the water? And then my brain caught up with my eyes and I realized that was a hellbender under this rock hiding from me. And then I went to photograph it, but I had a faulty battery and the battery died. And so I told the hellbender to stay where it was. I got out and changed out the batteries, got back in, and of course it was gone. But uh, then I did find either that one or another one in its lair. Um, a few feet away. So I was able to find that guy's house, which was really cool. One dramatic example, Ryan was talking about siltation and and runoff. There's a stream that we've been visiting for a few years in the mountains of West Virginia to capture brook trout imagery. And there was a huge rain event there at, at some point when we weren't there. But you go back and there was this little feeder stream that went into the mainstream where the brook trout were. And this feeder stream was gone. Like it was underground. It had been totally covered up by cobble, gravel. And a lot of that cobble and gravel that came down that little tributary went into this hole where the brook trout occurred. And the brook trout weren't there anymore. This hole had basically filled in from runoff. Luckily, we went downstream just a a short distance and were able to find their new hole that they had found and get some good imagery. But that's a case where upstream there, there had been some impacts, probably some kind of road construction or things that caused all that material to wash downstream and fill in this brook trout hole. Yeah, that instability upstream of that brook trout hole was catastrophic for that one. I had been 
going back to that hole for at least 15 years. And all of a sudden, yeah, there was absolutely no brook trout in there anymore because it was too shallow. It had completely filled in that hole, whereas before it was a crystal clear fish tank of brook trout. So yeah, just downstream, some of them had regained some habitat or maybe some new habitat had been created by that same flood. But by and large, I do think that was a loss and that's an important reason why certain road construction and logging construction techniques have to take into account the impact they're having on the natural world and and the fish. So yeah, some streams have seen some change during our time in, in monitoring them. Ryan, I I know you've traveled a lot throughout North America looking at some of these different species. What are some of the most important trips that you've taken, the most exciting ones that you've had? I've seen a lot of interesting charismatic fish species. I photographed the alligator gar in uh, Mississippi, and that is, I believe the alligator gar may be one of the largest or the largest freshwater fish in North America. I think maybe the white sturgeon might compete with that. I'm not sure, but it is huge. It can be several hundred pounds. And just the face on that, you know, alligator gar, it does kind of look like an alligator. And for many years, that fish species was seen as competing with human interests. So I think a lot of them were killed. Lately, though, I think there's been a lot of rebound of alligator gar um, because they can tell that, well, this species actually helps us eat some of the invasive carp that are invading certain areas of the country. It's such a large fish. Another species that I really enjoyed photographing was the gulf sturgeon. This is a large sturgeon species, and it was on the Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And um, I think the, the biologists netted the sturgeon in very turbid water, but then we brought the sturgeon on the boat into some clear water to photograph it. And uh, just a beautiful, ancient, ancient species of fish. It's a living dinosaur, basically. But more recently, I've been more and more attracted to all the diversity of the fish species in the Appalachian mountain range, because there's so many species, it's so diverse, especially the family of fish, uh, the darters. Darters are very tiny fish, and they can be very brightly colored. Like the name suggests, they dart because they have no swim bladder. They can't maintain a neutral buoyancy like other fish, so they dart from one rock to another. But they can be incredibly varied and incredibly colorful in the springtime during breeding season. One species I had the good fortune to photograph recently was steelhead trout. Now, steelhead trout have the same scientific name as rainbow trout. I believe it's Oncorhynchus micus. I'm sure I've just butchered the Latin. But these are sea-run trout. They actually come all the way from the ocean into the fresh water to spawn. And these came all the way up into Idaho and to the Dwarshack National Fish Hatchery, where the employees there were helping to spawn this fish. And this fish has problems. It's endangered because of all the dams on the large rivers. It makes it hard for salmon and other fish to breed and to get past these structures. So humans have been helping with that, mitigating that. But we needed to photograph this fish underwater to help publicize its uh, plight and show how pretty this fish is. And um, 
But a fish like this is not just going to sit still while you photograph it in its own habitat. It's a big river. It wants to get away from you. So we rescued a fish that was going to be spawned or killed, and we pulled it back out into the river. And one of the biologists suggested that we run some fishing line through its mouth and out through its gill plate and almost walk it like a dog in the river. And, and that worked great. The fish was calm and it kind of sensed it couldn't get away right now. And it, I was able to photograph it quite effectively. And then we released it. Unharmed. Yeah, uh, the fish was able to swim away, uh, able to fight another day and, and uh, challenge some fishermen. Yeah, that's an incredible thing where uh, instead of a rainbow trout being a resident river animal, it's spawning, uh, it's going to the ocean for a number of its years. It's an interesting behavior. That is the most fun part besides achieving a, a good image of a fish is sometimes solving the problem of how you can do that. because. Each species has its own limitations and access problems. Uh, right now, I'm trying my best to photograph American eels, and they're nocturnal, and they tend to move during high water, which means dark and stormy water. So, um, yeah, we're trying to photograph them right now, and it helps sometimes American eels have eel ladders, in some cases, that go over dams. And some of the folks who run these hydropower stations are trying to help me photograph this eel by collecting them in these uh, eel ladders. So, so yeah, it's there's always a new challenge with each fish species, and whether you're snorkeling or you're diving to photograph them, it's a uh, it's a new challenge. And eels are like the opposite of steelhead, right? They are, in fact. They're they're crossing in the night, like the eels are going to the ocean to spawn and the salmon are coming into the river to spawn and then they they switch. I love the the terms for that. Uh, salmon are anadromous and uh, American eels are catadromous. And are they the only thing, the only species that is catadromous? I would have to look that up. I'm not sure if they're the only species, but maybe the one of the most unusual and most important species to do that by the millions, right? Fantastic creatures. I mean, super hard to hold, super slimy, and uh, but very interesting. We've seen them when we've done night dives before in the Potomac River and low clear time periods. But yeah, they're hard to find otherwise. Well, thank you, Matthew and Ryan, for sharing your scientific river diving adventures with us. We got a real sense of how it feels to be underwater, looking for fish, mussels, and other aquatic organisms. And thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you for listening to the National Conservation Training Center podcast series. If you have feedback, thoughts, or stories you'd like to share, contact us at nctc underscore podcast at fws.gov.